Good morning and welcome to the house of the Lord. And those of you joining online, good morning to you. We are in Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, and we will take verses 35 through 41. Mark's Gospel, chapter 4. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Beginning in verse 35. On the same day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind. And said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly, and said to one another, Who can this be, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Please be seated. Storm tossed. That's this morning's title to this morning's message, and this is one of the great stories in the entire Bible, one among many, of course, but it is a great one. And not only is it one of the greatest stories, it is also a living parable. What those men experienced on that day runs parallel to experiences that we face in in this life, storms at sea. Life being metaphorically the sea, and of course we're on that boat that travels through it. And parables, lessons from the scripture, these stories that are preserved for us, they're supposed to have some impact on our lives. Uh, What good are the parables, the stories, the insights, the lessons, if it never shows up in a way that brings any glory to God or improvement to ourselves as sinners? So these lessons are supposed to be meaningful. We look at verse 35, and there again we read, On the same day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side. We know from the previous verses that it had been a full day of ministry. He had taught many a parable, and all that goes into ministering to multitudes of people. One of the other Gospels tells us that the multitudes were just you know, pressing on him, so he had to get in the boat to leave. That was part of what was going on. And that tells us that it was an exhausting day. At least it helps us understand the realistic side of what is going on here. Uh, teaching is uh, tiring. Teaching the Word of God, I believe, even uh, increases that. There's a, a, an intensity that, is, that goes with teaching God's Word that I don't think is found in other places. And he, according to his humanity, he experienced this. He was exhausted. And that's why he's going to be sleeping on a pillow in this windstorm. He won't even be awakened by it. So, as productive as that day had been, it will not end without a storm. That's one of the first connections we make to life. 
You can have a productive life, a productive day, a productive month, etc. And yet, there's going to be a storm at some point. And these men in the boat with him, and the other little boats that were also following, likely with men and women in those boats, they were headed for this one of many opportunities to demonstrate to Christ that they had been listening to his parables and learning something about God and themselves. But had they learned? Did they really learn yet? From the Son of God himself, that's who was their teacher. What had they learned? Well, they're going to find out what they didn't learn, and they're going to learn some new things. And so he turned this storm on this little lake into a classroom for his disciples to this very day. We are still learning. I have called on this section of scripture many times in my life. One particular, one particular part sticks out the most to me. Rabbi, don't you care that we're perishing? Who has not felt that as a believer? going through some very difficult, stubborn, painful, awful experience, and it seems as though he is sleeping in the stern of the boat. I'm getting ahead of the story, but I, how, can you, how can you not point that out early on? Church history is intermingled with success and failure and affliction, as is the Christian life in every generation. We have to face it, but that's not enough. It's not enough to face life. The unbeliever can do that. And they can do it very well, too. We face life as though there is an eternal life. As, as though there's something more, and we know it. We are aiming towards it. And we want to perform accordingly. Not trying to simplify any of our traumatic experiences in this life. Not trying to brush over them. Those of you who have suffered great losses and pains, not trying to dismiss that and say, come on, you're supposed to be a stronger Christian. Well, we always are going to say you're supposed to be a stronger Christian, but we're not going to say, come on, as though it didn't count your pain and suffering. The Bible tells us that God has bottled up our prayers, our tears. He knows what's going on. But just to cover some of the failures that these apostles would face in ministry. And ministry means serving God. There's pastoral ministry, then there's, there's non-pastoral ministry. Everybody who serves the Lord, who preaches the gospel, who upholds the faith, who demonstrates the love of Christ, that's ministry. There's ministry in church, it's ministry outside of church. A very broad meaning, but all of it is significant. In chapter 3... Beginning in 14, uh, verse 14, we read, And he appointed twelve, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and to have power, to heal sicknesses, and to cast out demons. Now that was for that assignment. That did not remain with those men. It did not even remain with them for the rest of their lives. For some of it, it would come back and go again. But then in chapter 9, we will read eventually, and when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast him out? And so in one uh, part of their serving Christ, they had power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. And yet in another part, they could not cast out the demons. And they were very troubled by this. They had experienced success in ministry, and now they were tasting failure. And failure is always distasteful. 
on every level. But it does not give us license to enter the flesh, although we will from time to time. So he says to get into the boat, uh, well, he says, let us go to the other side, Decapolis. It's that area east of the Sea of Galilee. And again, well, I'll get back to that to talk about Galilee later on, but uh, once he arrives to that, uh, after this storm, he's going to have, they're going to face more challenges, but we'll stay centered on the storm. It's only a six-mile journey from where he was in Capernaum across to Decapolis or to the other side of the lake, a short trip. And these fishermen, several of them were veteran fishermen, boatmen, they were in their element. He could leave them to the leave the sailing to us, Lord. Go back and relax. I'm sure that's what. And he just goes back and he sleeps where where we belong, on the sea. In verse 36. Now, when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat, as he was, and other little boats were also with him. Now, when they had left the multitude, well, there's a, just a sort of a veiled statement by Mark that says, don't forget there were multitudes of people pressing on him, jostling, and it was exhausting. So he just puts that in there, keeps it in front of us. They took him along. How much is packed into these words? Because what happens when someone doesn't take Jesus along? What happens if he's not with them because they did not invite him or made no room for him? See, these kind of verses, they leap out, they glare at us. And they ask questions such as, what are you going to do in life? What are you going to do when windstorms come up? What are you going to do when you have good success? We have to watch everything. Like a minefield, this life. It says, they took him along. In the boat as he was. Another one leaps off the page. As he was. That's how they took him. I'm not overly spiritualizing these things. They're right there. This is doctrinal. Jesus does not change. In fact, theologians have given this a name. The immutability of God. He's unchanged. does not change because there's nothing to change. He's perfect as he is. According to his humanity, he did develop. But he could have pulled the plug on that at any time and reverted back to his full-blown deity outside of his humanity. Of course, he would not do that. He was here on a mission, and he accomplished that mission, and he submitted himself to these things. The immutability of Christ and of God means we must receive him as he is, as it says here, in the boat as he was. Hebrews 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same. He's not going to change. I like to think that this ministry overall is not going to change. We like it the way it is. I mean, there are certain adjustments you have to make for sure, but the foundation of it is in Christ, and that's not changing. And it is a biblical approach, hopefully, as we understand it. Attempts to change or to shape, or to conform Jesus Christ into anything, is sin. We receive him as he is. We're not going to change him. We hope he changes us. Hebrews chapter 1, again, verse 12. Like a cloak, he's quoting now Psalm 102 there in Hebrews 1. Like a cloak, 
you will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. The sovereignty, the omnipotence of God. Jesus Christ is God the Son. And so here the psalmist, the writer to Hebrews, is trying to tell the Hebrews, listen, our Messiah is God. He is divine. And we have no need for anything else outside of him. He's telling the Jews, stop being Jewish. Not ethnically, but religiously. Don't go to the temple. Don't bring sacrifices there. You're complete in him. He's done it all. This one is better than Moses. This one is better than the temple. This one offered something better than animal blood, sacrifice. He offered himself. Malachi chapter 3, for I am Yahweh, I do not change. You can only say that about Christ. And God, the Godhead, of course, they'd be less than perfect. What if God said, you know what, I'm working on it. I'm just not fully, you know, into the, this God thing like I want to be. That would be off. That would be a heresy. And so, again, he was in the boat as he was. And I just wanted to take the time because I love talking about the majesty of Jesus Christ. Other little boats, it tells us, were also with him. So we have a little, this mini convoy is what we have here. They are going to provide witnesses to this miracle. You see, when the apostles published these things, there were witnesses, eyewitnesses. And they could say, yep, that happened. I was there. I saw that. They were not all everywhere in the same place at the same time. Some of them were because they were part of the apostles and the the close-knit disciples. But they were spread out with this testimony because many false gospels popped out. And those who were eyewitnesses would say, no, that's not right. That's not what, and so created this demand to publish the gospel from reliable sources such as Mark or Peter through Mark, John himself, Matthew, and Luke, the beloved physician. Storms of life, they rock us. They rock the vessels that we are in, our soul, our bodies. And they do this with or without Jesus. Life is going to batter you whether you're a believer or not. Being a believer will not get you out of or make an exception to this. But I also notice where it says here, and other little bolts were also with him, that we're never battered alone. They're going to be on the same troubled sea. These little battered boats will be together. They will all be going through this at the same time. You remember Sunday, uh, Wednesday, we were talking about Samuel. As the people said, no, we don't want you to be the judge anymore. We want a king. And Samuel was heartbroken, thinking that they rejected him. And to some degree, they did reject him. And then God said to Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Of course, Samuel's included in that. He's not left out of that because he was siding with God. And so there, um, Samuel was in fellowship with God. He wasn't suffering alone. This is lessons throughout Scripture. One of the greatest prophets of them all, the great prophet Elijah, thought that he was alone in his devotion. The Elijah complex. We all have to watch it. I'm the only righteous one. I'm the only good, you know, musician for the Lord. I'm the only 
uh, great pastor for the Lord. Okay, take that one out. <laughs> that Elijah complex is not from the Lord, and he wanted to let that be known. Now, Elijah, understand, he had, to, he had watched the prophets be slaughtered. He not only slaughtered the prophets of Baal, but he knew that Jezebel was killing men of God. And other unnamed men were hiding prophets to keep them protected. And after this great victory on Mount Carmel, he flees for his life. And he gets to the cave, and we pick it up in 1 Kings chapter 19, and he's speaking when, when God says, Elijah, what are you doing here? There's no ministry in the cave. All alone. Nobody to preach to. So he said, I've been very zealous for Yahweh, God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Well, there was a lot of truth in that, but it wasn't the absolute truth. And so God ministers to Elijah, and then before leaving and moving to the next phase, God says, kind of a, by the way, God says in verse 18 of 1 Kings 19, Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. These were the defiant ones. And God knew who they were. And he wanted us, centuries later, to remember that we're never alone. We never suffer alone. We never fight alone. We may not see the others, but they're there. Verse 47 now of Mark's Gospel, chapter 4. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. Where it says a great windstorm, that word great in the Greek, we get our English word mega from from this word. Megas in the Greek. This was a big storm. That's the idea. These were skilled fishermen. They'd been on that lake for probably all their lives. They'd been around that lake and on it. They knew what they were doing. But this one was bigger than them. And on that Sea of Galilee, winds, you know, there's these little gullies and hills and mountains all around. And the winds can come rushing down just all of a sudden. Uh, I, on the Sea of Galilee, on a boat, just all of a sudden, the wind just picked up and came, and the boats rocked, and fortunately, it stopped. I'd been working on that walking on water thing, but I hadn't perfected it, so I was still a little nervous. Anyway, to be a fisher of men is to travel the sea. These are abstract lessons that are concrete. That is a paradox. Sounds like it contradicts, but it does not. It makes its point. Where mega storms come from seemingly out of nowhere, that's life. You're just sailing along, short little journey, six miles or so, and you're hit with this thing that is going to try to take you to the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. Galilee goes as deep as 141 feet. And the waves beat into the boat. That's my life. That's your life at times. Jesus, he's in the boat with them. Remember that. He's tossed just as much as they were. He experiences this. Now, remember this. God does not have to experience something to understand it. He cannot learn because he knows it all. But 
He, to bring it into view, to touch us so that we understand it. These experiences are laid out. His suffering as a son, for example, as we're told in Hebrews, uh, so that we can understand that we have a high priest who is sympathetic to us. It is a point of contact. It is a point of touch, and touch is critical. Just be untouched. Just let somebody treat you like a leper. I've referenced Dr. Paul Brand's book, Philip Yancey, Paul Brand, Fearfully, Wonderfully Made, and in his image, two volumes said, wonderful read. I say that now. I read it uh, 40 years ago, but still, I think it's a great book. Well, Dr. Brand worked with lepers. He restored their hands that they had damaged in their feet. That was his specialty. And he goes into great detail about how lepers crave to be touched. For someone to just shake their hand, to pat them on the back. And uh, I remember when, uh, when my mom uh, went to the Lord. I went to work that day. It was what else to do. It was expected. And I remember this unbeliever, uh, the foreman on the job, Eddie was his first name. If I said his last name, you wouldn't know him, so I'm not going to say it. But Eddie just came up. He said, I heard about your mom. It's a tough loss. And he put his hand on my shoulder and he just walked away. And it was the whole thing, just a split second. And it was so meaningful to me. I didn't even know it was going to be meaningful. I'm just working, you know, thinking that, you know, well, we expected this. She's in a better place. She's suffering a little bit. And uh, the touch, the touch at the right time. Now, some of you men need to be careful with your touching. Should put that in there and not, you know, let the husband touch them on the shoulder, but to just understand the boundaries and understand how meaningful these things are, and understand also you don't always need your hands to touch somebody. There are other ways that you can touch another soul and, and be a blessing. Well, <clears throat> and the waves beat into the boat. Well, if you say battered boat and you're hungry, you might think it's battered like. Uh, a corn dog. I don't know. <laughs> but it was beaten, buffeted. And uh, you, of course, I think when I'm sitting in my study thinking of this, of course, I, how can I not think of certain verses? For example, Second Corinthians, where Paul says, A messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. God knew that I needed to be held in check. I didn't know that. I'm thinking I'm doing pretty good, but God knows better, and I'm submitted to that. And he knows that he has invested so much in, in me that the temptation to be puffed up, to have that Elijah complex, that only I am truly used by God. So God sent a messenger to just help hold me in place. Acts chapter 28, we see Paul ministering. We talk, we're talking about the waves beating the boat, life beating the life. Acts 28, verse 3, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. He was on the Isle of Malta. He had such a fear of snakes, he went screaming all the way to Germany. No, he didn't. That would have been me. The point is, here he is in ministry. He just survived shipwreck. He didn't survive a storm. He did that, yes. But he survived shipwreck. In that case, the ship did wreck. Some of them made it to shore. Broken pieces of the boat. Shattered dreams. And there he is ministering. 
after this traumatic experience, and a viper gets him. That's life. You see, we want to cry out, what next, Lord? <laughs> Do you really want to know? <laughs> I've heard a lot of folks say, God only gives you what you can handle. Mm, I take some issue with that. Because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You're going to deal with it. Deal with it in Christ. That's the goal. Whether these things are too big for me or not. I'm not going to take out time to point out biblical examples because I think you can do that yourself. And we're going to move on to the next section, verse 37, where it says, so that it was already filling. So the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling, sinking. The boats were sinking, boats plural, not just the one he was in, all of them. And the other ones were smaller vessels. They were tossed more. Mark Matthew adds this, the boat was covered with the waves. They were getting smashed. Now, this is a key point from this lesson in the Bible. This is one of those chapters that sticks with you for the rest of your, your Christianity if you've not been, faced it before. At least it did for me. I've read quite a few sermons on this chapter in my Christian walk and loved them all. But at this point, it's good to say that the presence of Christ on board does not guarantee smooth passage. Just because Christ is with you does not mean you're not going to get battered. Pentecost, the day the church was born, the first church at large, was followed by persecutions and triumphs. Triumphs, proof of that is why we're here now. Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 3 is a magnificent sermon. You would say to yourself, is this the fisherman of Galilee? How does he know the scripture so well? How does he have such power and, dy and dynamite? And then you come to Acts chapter 4 and he's imprisoned. And then we come to Acts chapter 5 and he is useful. And then the story just keeps, the, you know, the roller coaster, the up and the down, the up and the down. As great as our salvation is, that salvation may be questionable if we don't go through the storms of life with Christ. Again, the unbeliever can go through the storms of life without him and do very well according to the flesh, not according to the spirit. It is true that in the end, ultimately, any vessel with Jesus aboard will never sink to the bottom of the sea. In the end, when Jesus says it this way, and whoever lives and believes in me, he shall never die, do you believe this? See, that's an abstract concrete. He's talking about your soul. Your spirit will live forever. You will physically die. He physically died. Spurgeon, uh, Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher of the, in the 1800s, he said, I, I, I want to taste death. My master tasted it. I want to taste it. You get that way from being a child of the Lord Jesus Christ filled with the Holy Spirit. So believers are not exempt from sickness, from poverty, from injustice, from natural disasters, bereavement, death themselves, and the ills of life. And yet he promises, he promises not his protection always, but his presence and we have to learn to say that's better. 
It's better to suffer with Jesus than to not have him with us at all. Or to avoid trouble. He did not avoid trouble. He went looking for it. When the Holy Spirit told Mary she was conceived with a child, he, that announced from the Godhead that Christ had come looking for trouble. He's the only person ever to ask to come into this world. Verse 38, And when he was in the stern asleep on a pillow, they awoke him and said to him, Rabbi, do you not care that we are perishing? The witness, in this case Peter, clearly remembered. <laughs> Here he is on a pillow. It's, it's, everyone's stormed. Storm, I mean, he's a seasoned fisherman, and they're, they're, they're panicking. It's, you know, red alert. All hands. This is the only occasion, incidentally, in the Scripture where we read of Jesus Sleeping, and it's in a storm. Asleep, not dead, not absent, not angry, just apparently inactive. His sleeping itself is a sermon. John's Gospel, chapter 14 Let your heart not be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. It's so nice when you're a new believer to read that. Until you've faced a lot of struggles in Christ. And found out that you've got to face the struggles in Christ. And then you read this verse and you say to yourself, where it says, believe also in me. You have to say again, I believe it. I, I will to believe it. I choose to believe what I'm told in Scripture because I know it's true. And if there are cobwebs here and there, they are outgunned by the things that are crystal clear. And God knows it. These men, they must have been astonished that Jesus could sleep through this. And again, he was physically exhausted. Such imminent danger. And he is, to us, looking at the story, apparently disconnected. As it seems when you struggle in life sometimes. Is he even listening? Have you ever prayed and felt there was an iron wall there and just your prayers couldn't just not penetrate or the dud prayers, they go up so far and then they fall like ashes to the ground as fireworks, but they don't make it to heaven. They make it, every single one of them. If you're in a time of struggle and you don't think your prayers are getting through, go ahead and blaspheme. See if you think that'll get through. Because you know it will. Because God is present. And he hears, and he knows what he's doing. And while their world was being torn apart, he's apparently sleeping, totally at peace. They're thinking, hey, your ministry and all of us is going to just perish right now. You're going to die with us. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? So at some point in this windstorm, however long it lasted, they realized they better get him up. Not to do a miracle. That wasn't their intention. They wanted him to help bail water. Keep the ship floating. Because they never saw what was coming. That was fine, you know, healing people on land. But this is the sea. This is the weather. This is an element. This is not spiritual. This is a physical deal. That in their heads. 
So shouldn't you be doing your part rather than napping in the midst of all this? Not a Bible study we need. We need you with a bucket. (laughs) Jonah chapter 1, similar deal, right? Jonah running from the Lord. It's exhausting running from God. And the devil had a boat conveniently waiting for Jonah. And, you know, he was called to ministry and he said, "Mm, no, I don't think so. And he went down to Joppa. He found the boat. He went down into the boat and he goes to sleep. And the boat, you know, cast off, heads out to the... Now, this is the Mediterranean Sea, not the little lake of Galilee. And uh, he's sleeping in their same situation. So the captain came to him and said, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. I don't know. I remember being out in the fleet at sea in pretty big storms. And I just always felt that, you know, we've got helicopters, we've got rafts everywhere... Life jacket said, yeah, how can we fail? It was just naivete, but these men didn't feel that way. So while the rest of us are fighting the storm, the seas of life, fighting for our lives, do we ask God the same question? Do you care? Do you even care? What about the mission? It's in danger. In this age... As in that Bible times, God often appears to be quiet. Gideon said, if God is so much with us, then if I am such a man of valor, then how come, where's the God of our fathers? And all the Bible stories we read about, you know, Joshua and Moses and Jacob. And here I am thrashing wheat, thrashing wheat in, in a wine press, hiding from the Midianites. So if God is all that, why are things the way they are? And essentially the answer was, yeah, yeah, that's all fine and good. Look, this is what I need you to do. That's really what happened to Gideon. And so in this age, it is not much different. Encouraging us to trust based on the revealed truths from Scripture to force a Christian to say, I believe, thus saith the Lord. I believe my Bible. I do not believe in Watchtower or any other book or writing or thought contrary to the scripture, no matter what happens. And so they accused the one who was bent on dying for their souls for not caring. In hindsight, it's almost comical. And Peter, of course, knew better. So they thought they knew Christ. They saw the miracles. They were now apostles and the others were followers. That's why they were following. They were so attracted to him. They thought they knew him. We may have the same problem. You may get so familiar with the word of God that you think you're exempt from certain things. Mickey Mantle, he's such a simple boy from Oklahoma who always got, you know, his quotes are just pretty good. And of course, Mickey Mantle's dad worked with him so hard at baseball. And he says this, well, he said this, it's unbelievable how much you know about the game you've been playing All your life. It's unbelievable how much you don't know. Did I say don't? Did I I leave that word out? It's unbelievable how much you don't know about the game you've been playing all your life. It's unbelievable how much you don't know about the scripture and God. Even though you've been serving all your life. And so it always defaults back to trust. So we have so much to learn about Christ, and when we don't get it, we just 
are to default to trust. Job said it probably the best. Though he slay me, I will trust him. I don't know what's going on. This is painful. I can die waiting for God. And yet I'm going to trust him nonetheless. Why? Because I have enough evidence to not go back on. I have enough light. So that when I, I reach, come to those places in life and in scripture that are, are, are shadows and I don't get it. Or they seem uh, contradictory or perplexing. Yeah, well, I got enough other information to trust this. We exercise this kind, uh, to some degree, faith. When you get in your car and you, you're trusting the other guy is going to stay in his lane, the oncoming traffic. Because you have enough evidence that they usually do. Verse 39, And he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. <laughs> so it was the touch of a human hand, not the storm that woke him up. That's what I was talking about earlier. The touch is so important. The contact. The storm could not get him up with the voice of a child in need. He slept, but he didn't oversleep. I get courage from those words. I don't get utter satisfaction sometimes, but I get tremendous amount of courage. So much so, if I didn't get that kind of courage... Without the satisfaction, I would have stopped serving a long time ago. But you just keep going because you know. Yeah, he's maybe sleeping, but he won't oversleep. He says, peace be still. Not the, the, this is in the Greek, it's not the usual word for peace. It really is silence. It's, it's not, you know, peace like a no or shield from Violence or something, it is, he is saying, and the word be still is be muzzled. He'd used that already in chapter 1 and when he was addressing the demonic being. So really he is saying to the wind, uh, to, the, to the storm, be silent and be muzzled. I think most translators should not have peace be still. Some, some have be silent and be still or some variation of that. The New King James and the, the, some of the others, the Old King James, even the English Standard versions, they, they use the peace be still. It's not wrong. It's just not right. It just ain't right. Silence. Be mute. Quiet and stay that way. That's, that's what he was saying to the storm. Stop it. And, and don't come back. And don't do it again until I get to the other side. Now, I mentioned that in Mark chapter 1, verse 25, Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. It's the same Greek word, uh, be muzzled. And that's what he is saying. So, the question is, was this a spiritual attack granted by the Lord God to Satan to attack this little flotilla? Did Satan think that he could do some damage here? Was he granted this permission? Making the link between Mark chapter 1 where he says, be muzzled to the demon and making the link when he's speaking to the storm and using the same words. I don't know for sure, but it's an interesting thought. It doesn't matter because Christ prevails over the spiritual and the elements as well. He owns creation. And there's a difference between what he said to the wind and what he said to the sea. He rebuked the wind because the wind was stirring up the waves. 
And he spoke to the waves to be silent. And don't do it again. Ephesians chapter 2, the prince of power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. That's a possibility. But Christ has divine power both over again, as I said, the spiritual and the elements as well. Global warmers, alarmists are troubled by the fact that God owns. He owns creation. And he's really not interested in their theories. He is interested in what they think about him. And if they can get right their thoughts about him, they won't be so troubled about their thoughts about snow. Snow kidding. <laughs> All right, that uh, corny one. <laughs> and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. One word from him, and nature did what it was told, and it stayed there. And so you could say he put it in its place. That is exactly what he did. Genesis chapter 1, the earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And they all knew about this verse. And they all believed that God controlled the seas and everything else. Baal did not control the rain and the weather, nor did Jupiter or Zeus or any of those. It was Yahweh to the Jew. And it became Jesus Christ to the Christian. As the lights begin to turn on, this little lake of Galilee. If you, you go to Galilee and you say, this is it? Well, it's not. that's not what makes it great. Looking at the Sea of Galilee does not make it great. It's what happened on, on this sea. Who visited it? Jesus calming the storm, walking on the water, telling Peter to go down to the sea of the lake of Galilee and there's a fish with money in his mouth to pay taxes. And then the miraculous catch of fish twice on this Sea of Galilee. And so when, I don't know, when I look at the Sea of Galilee, I just say to myself, wow, Christ was actually here. And not only him, of course. I'm more interested in Mount Arbel that overlooks the sea from where Christ, I think, all the evidence will show. We'll get to that in coming chapters where he watched them straining at rowing. Verse 40, But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Two hard-hitting questions. <laughs> oh, that's an easy question, Lord. I don't understand why we don't have their answer. Well, I do, and I don't. Of course, well, let's open it up a little bit. Why are you so fearful? That, that word so in the Greek, it, it, it makes fearful emphatic. He doesn't say, why are you fearful? He says, why are you so fearful? They were panic stricken. He, when he woke them up, when he wakes up, he sees their eyes this big. <laughs> he knows that there's a big problem with their faith. So they must have been over the top with fear. And... Uh, they had fear because they had no faith, because faith cancels out fear. It's so easy to say that, is it not? Perfect love cast out fear. Fear involves torment. You know, God has not given you the spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of sound. Those, great, those verses are great, and we need them. But there are times where you are scrambling to lay hold of their meaning and apply it in a glorious way. How is it that you have no faith? You want to say, Lord, this is a silly question. 
the waves were coming in the boat, battering the boat. You remember? No, no, actually I don't. I was sleeping. But was there maybe a little smugness with these men? We're apostles now, and we you know, are expert fishermen. I don't know. That could have been maybe, maybe not. But when he says, yeah, well, you have no faith. Faith is not abstract. Faith is concrete. It is in a person. It's not a thing. And anybody who says have faith in faith is not, is not speaking Bible truth. There's no such thing as having faith in faith. Faith is not my God. I do not pray to my faith. Faith is my trusting in a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he has a Father, and there is a Holy Spirit, and these three are one, and they have always been one, and they always will be one. And so that's important that we understand. Faith is trusting God according to what God has said. But this one question from the Lord is a question that all of us, if coming from him, would not dare answer. How could you? In fear and pain, uh, luxury, these are faith killers if we're not careful. G. G. Campbell Morgan says in a sermon on this section, I would rather weather the storm and miss his rebuke. I would rather come through the storm without disturbing him. Yeah, me too. But that's probably not going to happen. Not in a storm of this intensity. So Morgan is saying, you know, if I, if I had my chance, knowing what I know about the story, if I was on this boat, I would just let him sleep and just deal with the storm, trusting in him. That is the ideal. The reality is a whole different thing. But it is that combination of having the ideal of our faith and facing reality with the ideals that makes us victorious, that makes us different than everyone else. Verse 41, one of the things that does. Verse 41, And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be, that even the wind and the sea obey him? From one fear to another. (laughs) From fearing the sea to fearing him. This is not the fear of terror. This is a reverent fear of shock and awe. This this was a whole other category of miracle. This was not, again, healing somebody. The other prophets had healed, and, you know, Isaiah told Hezekiah, you know, put a lump of figs on it, you'll be better in the morning, and stuff like that. But this was telling the weather to stop it. This is incredible. And they were, they were afraid, of, because they linked control over the elements directly to Yahweh. As I mentioned, they witnessed hundreds of miracles, if not more, And uh, this was amazing. So some of the lessons that we get. True, we are safer being tossed in the storm with the Lord on board with us without trying to change him. We're safer with him than anywhere else, no matter what happens. Judas died without him, as an example. And Peter continued with him. And so I always, you, you have to ask yourself, do I believe these things? You never get too old in Christ, too mature to to do a a check. Do I still believe these things? Because Satan will hound you. He wanted these fishermen and these followers to trust him through the storms of life. No matter what, he wants this of me. Even if he seems inactive and disconnected, disinterested and asleep, he still wants me to trust him. He demanded this from them. When he says, why are you so fearful? 
He demands this of us too. Christianity does not work well as a hobby. If you just kind of tinker with it, I just, you know, do it on Sundays, and the rest of the time I don't need it. That's not Christianity. One has to have a cross to bear. Take up your cross every day. And knowing that we will one day stand before him, and he will say, you did it. You stuck with me. Thick, thin. You stuck there. There were times you thought I didn't care. There were times you thought I was asleep. There were times you were terrified of me, and yet you stuck with me. Well done. So they ask, who can this be? Well, there could only be one answer who this could be. And they knew that. They knew this can only be God the Son. They didn't maybe word it that way, but they knew that they were in the, this wasn't a prophet. More than a prophet. The presence of Christ does not guarantee smooth passage in life, as mentioned earlier. But it does call for faith in him always. That's what it does. To have Christ with you in the boat demands that we look to trust him with all we've got. Satan, on the other hand, is saying, we'll see about that. We will see. And the spirit of God says, yep, we sure will. And I will protect them and they will be mine. Let's pray. Our Father, lessons again abounding in Scripture. They're just all over the place, but so is life all over the place. Carrying out the lessons that we gain from your parables, from these historical accounts, they're very important, very meaningful. May we not fail to see that. May we cling to these things by faith. And may we do it with a vigor that is not found outside of believing in you. May we impress people the same way light impresses darkness. May we impress them with your spirit working in our lives because of what you've done for us on the cross and beyond. If you are here this morning be it in the church building or online, and you have not offered, opened your heart and offered yourself to Christ as a sinner needing to be saved from your sins and the judgment to come. You have an opportunity to do that now. You have an opportunity to have the Lord with you and you with Him. All you have to do is ask Him to forgive you of breaking his commandments. All you have to do is say to him that forgiveness from sin rests with him and him alone. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man goes to the Father except through me. He is the door. You must come to him and repent. You must say to him, Lord Jesus, forgive me. I ask you to be my Savior from this day forward, to save me from judgment to come for my sin. There's nowhere else to go. You are the only Savior. And I ask you to be my Lord. There is nowhere else to go. You are the only Lord God. And I give my life to you, and I ask that you would be my Lord from this day forward. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. 
Now, Father, we commit these things to your hands. If anyone has made this confession, may they act on it and never move away from it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.